Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Evening, everybody. It's February 8th, 2019, and if you live in the East Coast, we just had a little bit of a storm come up, but uh, not been too bad. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Lourdes and uh, St. Bernadette, because February 11th, we celebrated Our Lady of Lourdes. And um, Lourdes, of course, in France is a very famous apparition site. It has uh, many miraculous cures, including the most recent of a a nun that had spinal problems, that uh, is the official, I believe, number 70 that the Roman Catholic Church acknowledges as of supernatural healing. So uh, there are many more healings, of course, but these are the ones, the 70 I mentioned in the history of Lourdes, are the ones that the Church recognizes as supernatural and miraculous. So uh, it's an incredible place. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, St. Bernadette. Now, her feast day, as I mentioned, we celebrated Our Lady of the Lords. Her feast day is April 16th, and she is the patron saint of illness, uh, people that are ridiculed for their piety, uh, of poverty, shepherds, shepherdesses, and uh, lords itself in France. She was born uh, on January 7th, 1844. So, she passed away on April 16th. That's why they celebrate, you know, um, feast days of the saints are usually the day they pass away. And uh, it's like a new birth, a birthday for them, uh, which them being canonized saints, uh, the church recognizes that they are in heaven. Um, and uh, that was in 1879. So she was beatified in 1925 and canonized by uh, Pope Pius XI on December you know, the year 1933. So, um, Lourdes, as I mentioned, is a popular, popular uh, destination site for pilgrims, uh, just like uh, Fatima. Um, Lourdes has uh, many cures, and it's well known for that and for the baths. And, uh, you know, these are the physical healings I'm speaking of now, but there are many supernatural um, healings that take place that aren't really recorded or other types of healings that really aren't recorded that people have because they don't uh, remember that the people that can heal don't necessarily have to go back and, and claim a cure or anything like that. They may very well keep it to themselves. So uh, nonetheless, Lords is a very, very important apparition in the church's history. And um, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, but we'll start with the, uh, and those kids will start with St. Bernadette. As I mentioned, she was born in Lourdes, France, and her parents were very, very poor, and they had nine children. As a matter of fact, they lived in a uh, what was a former prison, a jail cell. So they were extremely poor. And the father, you know, uh, he wasn't a deadbeat. He tried to find work, but at this particular time, and, you know, mentioning in the 1800s here, so this is fairly a fairly modern apparition. And it wasn't like he was, like I said, uh, shirking his duties. He wasn't. He was trying to find work, but uh, it was very, very difficult. So they lived in this damp and uh, former uh, prison cell. And Bernadette, when she was just a little toddler, uh, contracted cholera. And 
in turn suffered from extreme asthma. And unfortunately, she lived the rest of her life in poor health. That was one of her big crosses, is that she really never uh, experienced good health. Uh, a matter of fact, the Blessed Virgin had told her uh, in one of the apparitions, and there were 18 total, that she would not find happiness in this life, but in the next. So for those that are suffering or undergoing uh, incredible trials right now, uh, you know, it's not just a cop-out saying that, that uh, people that are spiritual use. There's, you know, a fact to that, that uh, we trust in the Lord that if we don't see what uh, some of the fruits or the goodness which we wish to see, especially with our crosses in this life, that God will make this all right in the next. And certainly the next is going to be a lot longer than the short life we know here on earth for most of us, because that will be eternal. But it was on a Thursday in 1858, February 11th, that St. Bernadette, Bernadette at that time, was 14 years old. And she was sent out with her younger sister and a friend to gather firewood. Remember, she lived in that cell, that former jail cell, and it was damp in there. And I'm sure that did not, um, you know, help with her, her health problems that she had contracted. And while they were gathering firewood, a very beautiful lady appeared to uh, Bernadette above a rose bush in a grotto called Massabiel. And this woman wore blue and white, and she smiled at Bernadette and then made the sign of the cross with a rosary of ivory and gold. Now, Bernadette knew this was special, and she fell to her knees. And they were a faithful family, Subirus. And Bernadette took her own rosary out and began to pray. Now, Bernadette described the woman later as a small young lady. Now, her sister and friend, they said they weren't able to see her. But Bernadette knew what she saw was real. Now, three days later, after uh, this uh, apparition, the first one, Bernadette's sister Marie and the other girls returned to the grotto. And Bernadette immediately knelt, saying she could see the lady again. And she fell into a trance. And one girl threw holy water at the niche, and another threw a rock that shattered on the ground. It was then that the apparition of Our Lady disappeared. So, you know, those are that trance is what, and you see this in, in uh, apparitions of the visionaries, it's going into ecstasy. That they're just so, you know, uh, in another world that in some of the apparitions they've stuck needles into the people and they try to distract them and nothing can. They are focused on that apparition and, uh, so they are taken to uh, certainly not an earthly realm that we are used to here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. So on February 18th now, Bernadette said that the lady asked her to return to the grotto each day for a fortnight. And with each visit, Bernadette saw the Virgin Mary, and the period of daily visions that she was witnessing became known become known as the Holy Fortnight. Now, when Bernadette began to visit the grotto, her parents were embarrassed and attempted to stop her. Now, this is um, 
you know, similar to Fatima, where Lucia's mother was very upset and was convinced her daughter was making lie about seeing this lady in the COVID area and caused her a great deal of suffering. So that's very natural, right? Because if you're a parent and your little kid comes up to you and says, I just saw the Blessed Virgin Mary, the odds are there's going to be some skepticism there. So when Bernadette began to visit the rally, because the parents could not stop her, Bernadette said on February 25th, that particular apparition for her was the one that was a life-changing one for Bernadette. The vision, i.e. the Blessed Virgin Mary, had told her to drink of the water of the spring, to wash in it and eat the herb that grew there as an act of penance. Now, the people that were gathering at this time, because like Fatima, word got out, they thought Bernadette had lost her mind. She started digging in the ground and was trying to drink this water. And when her face would come up after digging and eating these plants, it was covered with mud. And the people, you know, said amongst themselves, she's crazy. And right away you can see that Satan was beginning to try to see, uh, sow seeds of doubt. But Bernadette didn't care what the people were saying. The Blessed Virgin had told her to drink of that water and to wash and eat that herb, and she did. Now, the next day, the grotto's muddy waters had been cleared and fresh water flowed. Now, these, this spring that the Blessed Virgin had acknowledged as, uh, Bernadette is, of course, the spring that is uh, recognized with so many cures at Lourdes to this very day. So this was going to be a great... Uh, great uh, place of healing and one of uh, there was a stonemason in the village and this is what happened um while working on one of his projects many years before the apparition he had gotten a chip of the cement in his eye and he was blind in that eye and when he had heard of this he had went down to the spring and he put that water on his eye and his vision came back and once that began that story began to circulate in the vision well other people went for healings. And as we see uh, many, many years later, that this is a, uh, Lourdes is a great place uh, for healing, not just spiritual, but physical healing, actual physical healing, and that this spring is used. And you, you, you're probably familiar with the baths at Lourdes where the people are dipped in there for healings. And again, these are for physical healings. There are many types of healings that happen at apparition sites, spiritual, physical but I'm just concentrating on the physical ones right now. Now, on March 2nd, and this is uh, the 13th apparition, Bernadette told her family that the lady said a chapel should be built and a procession formed. So you can imagine that there was going to be opposition from this, certainly from the clergy, because they just can't take... Uh, even though there, were, there are many people following this and it was credible, at that time, they have to use discernment and great wisdom and just can't be, you know, you, you equal this with uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico where St. Juan Diego, that was a message there that she wanted a chapel built on the hill. And, of course, the bishop had to use great discernment. And if you're familiar with the story in the Toma and the flowers and the image left uh, by Our Lady on St. Juan Diego's Toma, 
that he <laughs> discerned pretty correctly that, yeah, I think we'll do the chapel. So you, you see this thread here between the, the Guadalupe story and the Lourdes story with the chapel being built. So during the steam vision now, remember there were 18 in total, Bernadette experienced for over an hour, and that was on March 25th, that she asked the woman her name. And the question was only met by a lady with a smile. And Bernadette asked again, and this apparition again took about an hour, three more times. And finally the woman said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Now, what's interesting there is, first of all, Bernadette was an uneducated young girl. You know, they had the chores to do. It was hard enough for the family just to hang on for their day-to-day existence. So there wasn't a lot of time for education. And she didn't know what the Immaculate Conception was. So she went to the priest because the Virgin Mary wanted uh, her to tell the clergy that that was the title. And what was unknown to Bernadette and certainly many people at that time, because the church at that time was beginning to um, flush out this title for the Blessed Virgin. And no one could have possibly known that. And that is when they knew that this apparition was for real. And uh, that chapel obviously was built. Now, like many, uh, like Fatima, um, Bernadette's story, even though many uh, townspeople believed uh, she was seeing the Holy Virgin, it created division. Remember, you know, where, where God is too, that Satan tries to, to do his best to throw doubt on apparitions, to do doubt on the cures, and, you know, God certainly is stronger. But you, you see this played out, too, in, in Fatima. Um, you can, you know, Medjugorje is an approved apparition as, as we speak right now. But, you know, many people have gone there. Many people are positive. We'll see what the church comes on that. But that's not an approved apparition. But you can see division there. That, that's one of the problems that they have there. So this is, this is one of the things you see Satan creates to throw doubt. And it works on a day-to-day basis with just doubt in your faith when we undergo the crosses or whether there are certain trials in our life or some of the mysteries that we are not going to get answers to. Um, you know, that opens the door for Satan to kind of get in there, uh, especially people weak of faith, and begin to cast doubt on this faith. So, you know, this division, again, taking place, and... Many thought, and I mentioned the story about the spring where they thought she did have some type of mental illness. Um, some people went with that, and some of them demanded that she be put in a mental asylum. And others believed that Bernadette's vision meant for Bernadette particularly that she needed to pray for penance because, you know, possibly her soul wasn't in, in trouble. So a lot for a young 14-year-old girl who, again, you know, not really educated and just undergoing a lot of trials between the townspeople and her health and and her parents and the the poverty they lived in. Very difficult, very difficult. 
but she kept her belief and she kept her faith strong, no matter how many doubters or what opposition. Now, um, we know that the church authorities and the French government itself rigorously interviewed Bernadette. And after all this investigation and all the interviews, 1862, they confirmed that she spoke the truth. So the vision was real, of supernatural origin. And we mentioned the spring. And I said now there, up until the, uh, the nun that was uh, recognized by the church, there were 69 cures, and now it's 70. And that has been verified by the Lord's Medical Bureau. And what happens here is there's a, a medical bureau at Lourdes that investigates these cases and investigates the cures. And these, uh, it's extremely rigorous scientific and medical examinations, extremely, because they don't want to miss. And they uh, really dot their I's and cross their T's on these cures. So the church, again, mentioned when a, claims that these are all uh, cures that are of supernatural origin, and there's 70 of them. But I'm not counting uh, the many, many cures that are, are not recognized like this by the church, but by people that may, again, have not even uh, gone back and said, you know, I had this particular ailment, I went to Lourdes, I went in the bath, I'm healed now. So there are many, many more over the uh, long periods of time. Um, now, the Lord's Commission that initially examined Bernadette ran an analysis on the water, but the only thing they were able to determine that it had a high mineral content. So for the naysayers, you know, they were going to try and uh, scientifically, again, close out any gaps or see if there was something wrong. And again, Bernadette believed it was faith and prayer that was responsible for curing the sick. And that water was, you know, a way to do that. Uh, so very fascinating. Now, we go back then the local priest uh, that had asked to build a chapel on the site of the visions. And, of course, that did take place. And the Sanctuary of Our Lady of Lourdes is now one of the major Catholic pilgrimage sites in the world. And there are many other chapels, chapels and churches that have built around it. Uh, one of them is the Basilica of St. Uh, Pius X. And that can accommodate, listen to this, 25,000 people. Can you imagine that? Man, is that powerful. Is that powerful. And it was dedicated by the future uh, Pope uh, John XXIII when he was the papal nuncio to France. So very, uh, very interesting. It's just remarkable that uh, you see this many people that come and give Our Lady uh, veneration and Our Lord uh, great honor by honoring and by going to Mass. Um, Anyway, after many miracles and um, you know the constructions of the, the chapel, Bernadette really didn't like the attention, and she went to a hospice school run by the Sisters of Charity of Nevers, where she was taught uh, there to finally read and write. Um, she did consider joining the Carmelites, but her health again, which plagued her. Uh, right from a little infant to, the, uh, to her death, uh, before she died uh, early, um, 
it was too fragile to join the Carmelites. But on July 29th, in 1866, Bernadette took the religious habit of apostolate and joined the Sisters of Charity at their mother house at Nevada. Uh, her mistress of the novices was Sister Marie Therese, Therese Vassou, and the mother superior at that time named her Marie Bernadette in honor of her grandmother. And, you know, Bernadette did not have it easy. Um, some of her fellow sisters thought she was an attention getter and like a celebrity, and they held that against her. And uh, that was truly unfortunate because in actuality, uh, Bernadette spent the rest of her life working uh, for the Sisters of Charity as an infirmary assistant and later as a sacristan. And she had a great, and people admired her for this, uh, humble, uh, uh, very humble uh, spirit and one that was uh, one of, uh, of great sacrifice. And one of her fellow nuns once asked her if she had temptations of pride because she was favored by the Blessed Mother. And, you know, there you go. You can see where there would be uh, jealousy there. And Bernadette answered uh, quite quickly, actually, how can I? The Blessed Virgin chose me only because I was the most ignorant. So she was a very humble, humble soul. And, you know, it's just, we see this, that the Lord, one of the reasons he chooses children, I believe, a personal opinion, is because they are open, and they, they aren't really jaded by the world yet, and their faith is pretty pure. And, you know, as they say, they're not the sharpest tool in the shed, is, like, is when we get older, and we have more education, and we can get skeptical, or, um, you know, even cynical. So, you know, and there's that spirit of pride that gets in there. And, um, you know, we think we should know everything. When, again, as I mentioned earlier, they, there's a great uh, great deal of mystery that we just won't know. Uh, and that's, you know, all there is to it. And it's hard to accept sometimes, especially in this day and age, where we have instant uh, news and instant answers almost all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's just not that way in the supernatural realm. Um, unfortunately for uh, Bernadette, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis of the bone in her right knee and was unable to take part in convent life. And, you know, that caused her a great deal of suffering because the nuns, uh, some of her sisters thought that she was just uh, faking it uh, to get out of the chores of the daily convent life. And later when that abscess and sore got so bad and they realized, they, they really felt very, very bad and asked Bernadette for forgiveness because then they could see that she tried her best and how, she could, how would she even be able to stand much or just do work, which she continued to do with that kind of pain because she was in great pain from this. And um, she died um, at the Holy Cross Infirmary of, on the, in the Covenant uh, convent, rather, of St. Gerard um, in 1879 while she was praying the rosary. And, you know, it, it's tough because even on her deathbed, you can see Bernadette suffered severe pain. And she kept with the Virgin Mary's uh, admonition of penance, penance, penance. And she proclaimed that all this is good for heaven. And Bernadette's last words were, Blessed Mary, 
Mother of God, pray for me. A poor sinner, a poor sinner. The nuns of St. Uh, Gerard, with the support of the Bishop of Nevers, applied to the civil authorities to, uh, for permission to bury Bernadette's body in a small chapel dedicated to St. Joseph, which was within the confines of the convent. And this permission was granted uh, in April in 1879. And on April 30th, the local prefect uh, pronounced his approval of the choice of the site for burial. So on May 30th, 1879, Bernadette's coffin was transferred to the crypt of the chapel of St. Joseph, where a very simple ceremony was held to commemorate the event. Now, this is very interesting. Excuse me. 36 years later, on September 22nd, two doctors and a sister of the community exhumed their body. And they said that the crucifix and rosary that she had carried had been oxidized. And you may know this, but St. Bernadette's body was incorrupt, and she is one of the incorruptibles. And that incorruption uh, was cited as one of the miracles for supporting her eventual canonization. And the group washed and redressed Bernadette's body, then buried it in a new double casket. And the church now exhumed her body again on April 3rd, 1919. And the doctor who examined the body said, the body is practically mummified, covered with uh, patches of mildew and quite a no notable layer of salts, which appear to be calcium salts. The skin had disappeared in some places, but is still present on most parts of the body. So in 1925, Bernadette's body was exhumed yet again. This time, the relics were sent to Rome, and an imprint of her face was molded, which is used to create a wax mask to be placed on her body. There were also imprints of her hands to be used for the presentation of the body, which was placed in a gold and crystal reliquary in the chapel of St. Bernadette at the Mother House of Nevers. And in uh, 1928, Dr. Comte. Uh, who did the examination, published a report on Bernadette's uh, examination in the second issue of the Association Medical of Notre Dame of Lourdes. And uh, he wanted to uh, get to the left side and to take the ribs as relics and remove the heart, uh, which he said he was certain survived. But, you know, it, it would have been very difficult to do that without causing too much noticeable uh, damage. So, you know, that, that was, uh, yeah. Plus, in this sermon, the mother superior had expressed a desire for the saint's heart to be kept together with the whole body. And uh, so the doctor uh, gave up that idea of doing that. But um, what struck uh, him during that examination, he said, was the state of the perfect preservation of the skeleton, and the fibrous tissues of the muscles were still supple and firm, and the ligaments, skin, and above all, the totally unexpected state of the liver after 46 years. Uh, he had said that one would have thought that this organ, the liver, which is basically soft and inclined to crumble, would have decomposed very rapidly or would have hardened to a chalky consistency. Yet, when it was cut, it was soft and almost normal in consistency. Um, I pointed this out, the doctor said, to those present, remarking that this did not seem to be 
a natural uh, phenomenon. Um, so we see that St. Bernadette is often depicted in prayer with a rosary and uh, appealing to the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, she was beatified, as I mentioned, in 1925 and canonized by uh, Pope Pius XI in December 1933. And I had mentioned what uh, she's the patron saint of. So a very humble and a very sweet young girl who claimed that her own ignorance was used by Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary to do great, great things that are still continuing back from 1858 to this very day in 2019. And um, that's going to lead me into my next part of Lourdes here, because my wife and I had uh, the pleasure of several years ago of going to a uh, conference uh, and a talk where this Dr. Alessandro Di Francisis a physician for more than 30 years, he refers to himself as a useless doctor, is the one that in 2009 um, was appointed by the bishops of Tarbes uh, and Lourdes to be the president of the Lourdes Office of Medical Observations. And I got to tell you, this guy is so down to earth, and I mentioned he calls himself the useless doctor. We'll get to that um, in a minute. But he had such a great sense of humor, incredible stories, and this guy is his mind is is like a razor sharp, and a very intelligent man, very intelligent man. Um, obviously, they're not just going to pick anybody to be the president of the medical observation of that office. So certainly well qualified, but another guy that you know you see the humbleness uh, in his spirit, and it's incredible. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. The Lord's Office of Medical Observations was founded in 1883, and it was uh, founded to record, study, and judge the hundreds of cures reported by pilgrims who came to Lourdes to wash in the waters of the spring, revealed by the Mother of God in those apparitions to uh, St. Bernadette Suvivu. Now, since then, okay, that's 1883, 7,000 cases of unexplained cures from severe medical conditions have been recorded. And as I mentioned, a total of 70 have been investigated by the Lord's Office of Medical Observations and been declared miracles by church authorities. So, again, that latest one uh, I mentioned was the nun with the, the spinal uh, condition, and that was in 2013. And this is why... Uh, Dr. Francisus jokingly refers to himself as a useless doctor because he said, my primary duty is to evaluate patients who have already been cured. So cured by God. So that's why he considers himself uh, useless. So, again, I, I mentioned he's, he's quite, a, quite a guy, quite a humble guy, and I was glad we got to get to that um, uh, conference. Anyway, um, when we, Bernadette dug up that spring that the Virgin Mary wanted to and, and went um, all, had all that opposition and, you know, all the uh, dissension that was in town, but still, you know, stayed focused on what the Blessed Virgin wanted her. Um, you, we see that one of the first cures 
uh, occurred only four days after the spring came into existence on March 1st in that year of 1858. And this was a 39-year-old woman uh, by the name of Catherine. Now, she lived in the town of Lubajak, and it was a few miles from Lord, and she had injured her right hand after she fell from a tree about a year and a half prior to the apparition. Now, that accident was so bad that it left the last two fingers of her right hand paralyzed, and they were held in a severely bent position. That, that, that's called palmar flexion, and that meant that her fingers there were inwards like a claw toward the palm of the hand. Now, what makes this interesting is that Catherine Lapate was not a practicing Catholic and she ignored the fervor surrounding reports of Bernadette's vision in the neighboring towns of Lourdes. She didn't have anything to do with it. She could care less because she didn't believe. Yet one night, in the middle of her sleep, she was moved by a sudden impulse. She rose at 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, a lot of you listening to the show might realize or have had these inspirations yourself at this hour. And it's recommended that you pray, possibly a divine mercy chaplet or prayer, because that is the hour of divine mercy. So she woke at this hour. Now, she woke her young children, and so strong was inspiration, she set off for Lourdes by foot, even though she was nearing the end of her, another child, for she was with child. Now, she arrived at dawn, and she met Bernadette. And she went to the grotto, and now she went and knelt down to pray. Then, with all the simplicity, just like a little child would, right? Just trusting, trusting in that inspiration and trusting in God, in something that she really didn't pay too much attention to before, she bathed her hand in that little hollow which had already collected water from the spring that Bernadette dug up. And her fingers immediately returned to normal. They had regained the movement and she was able to extend them with the same facility as she could before the accident. She returned home with haste to share the news of her good cure and later that same day gave birth to her third child who would later become a priest. So you can see all these miracles starting to take place. Now, Catherine's first, this first cure was attributed to the spring, and many others would follow. And the bishop of the local diocese of Tarbay, he had the responsibility of investigating the veracity of all these reports, and including, of course, the apparitions themselves. And his name was Bertrand Lorenz. And he completed this process on January 18th, 1862. You can see that this is something that the church and these things do not uh, rush into, and wisely so. They have to use great discernment and exhaust every uh, human, every known possibility before declaring uh, supernatural um, phenomena. So four years later, he published a decree affirming the reported apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary as worthy of belief 
based upon the reliability and upstanding character of the seer Bernadette. And of course, as well as the spiritual fruits and bodily cures received by pilgrims to the grotto. Now, on the same day that uh, the bishop declared by decree that seven cures among hundreds examined by appointed doctors were miraculous. So you can see that already this pattern, which continues today, of these healings, these are just the physical ones we're talking about now, not the many, 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 many spiritual ones. For those people that go, you know, uh, many seek a physical cure. But God in his wisdom knows that what they may need more is the spiritual one, which they get. So we know that there are healings, both spiritual and physical, in Lourdes or Fatima or uh, pilgrimage sites across the globe. Now, we know to this day that many, many, many pilgrims come in large numbers. Remember I mentioned that one uh, basilica of 25,000 people it can hold. Incredible. And they come to the Grotto Massabiel to honor the Blessed Virgin Mary and again to seek the spiritual and physical healing. Now, many, so many claim to have been cured that the church intervened to avoid the hysteria of superstition and to protect the authentic message conveyed by the Mother God uh, to the world at large because this is always this can always happen. Remember, you know, as I said, the, the, the devil tries to um, get confusion and division and disruption um, in all these things to throw off uh, the actual apparition and the actual veracity of God. You know, one of the things that happened at Lourdes is that uh, a couple people at one time saw who they thought was uh, Bernadette praying very devoutly. And they went and tapped her on the soldier, the, the shoulder, to get her attention. And when this individual turned around, it had a demonic face and got up and ran away. So you can see that where there is a great good that's going to happen, the devil will try to disrupt that. But God, of course, is much, much greater, much, much powerful. So... Fear not. So, in order to deal with all this, um, the Episcopal Commission at that time that was established to investigate the alleged cures was superseded in 1883. And this happened when the rector of the sanctuary called upon Dr. Georges Fernand Dunant de Saint Maclo, quite a name, to establish the Lord's Office of Medical Observation because this was going to provide much more rigorous medical analysis of the cures. So the goal of this organization was to have no one leave Lords claiming a cure without submitting his story to a rigorous and collegiate medical assessment. And that is go it would weed out many, many things. And in 1954, they had sort of a second instance committee, which was established to confirm the work of the Lord's Office of Medical Observation. So this is called the International Medical Committee of Lords. They have the task of assessing and certifying that the course of a cure declared unexplained by the Lord's Office of Medical Observations is indeed unexplained 
on the basis of current medical knowledge. So you see a great um, system of checks and balances because they're very sincere. And they want, uh, when they want a, a cure that uh, someone is claiming, they want it to be the real deal. And so you have all these safeguards. So, you know, one of the things they do is it's not just a one-and-done deal either that these people that have had the cure and are cured are followed their entire lives. So it, it's a very fascinating thing um, and gives great credibility to the humans at Lourdes for the ones that are acknowledged as, you know, unexplained cures. So the International Medical Committee of Lourdes, they have about 30 members. And as far as I know, at this moment, it is jointly presided over by the Bishop of Tarbay and Lourdes, Nicholas Brauwe, and its secretary is, as I mentioned, Dr. Alessandro de Francisi, the useless doctor, who is also president, as I mentioned, of the Lord's Office of Medical Observation. Now, the International um, Medical Committee of Lords can only pronounce a cure to be medically inexplicable. So if the committee comes to the conclusion, the Bishop of Tarbay and Lords forwards the findings to the Bishop of the Diocese where the cured individual lives. Now, that bishop must make the determination on behalf of the church as to whether uh, the given case is miraculous. So in this, we can see that the church's integrity in applying rigorous standards to affirming miracles, because you're talking uh, roughly 7,000 cases of unexplained cures that have been recorded at Lourdes, and only 70 have uh, been formally declared by the church to be miraculous. Now, I don't want to, uh, you know, lead you astray that that means the other, you know, 6,000 plus aren't. But this is just what the church has formally declared, like the apparitions. Uh, because you can imagine in all those cures how difficult it would be with this rigorous system to investigate all this. Um, and I mentioned that uh, we see that uh, one of those more recent uh, cures um, was a gentleman that began suffering from severe blood pressure problems, and uh, at uh, excuse me, the young lady, the lady, and um, at the age of 34, of course, this would put her at great risk for stroke or heart failure. And uh, this woman had uh, the ailments would continued for years, and no test was able to cause the uh, determine the cause of the high blood pressure. She had endured multiple surgeries, uh, none and which succeeded uh, in alleviating her condition. And uh, by 1989, her condition had uh, deteriorated. And this woman's uh, name is Danella Castelli, and her husband was a doctor uh, himself, made plans to bring her to the Mayo Clinic here in the States. Uh, but just before they decided to come here, uh, she insisted on going, Danella, to Lourdes. So... She bathed in the waters of the spring and immediately reported a feeling of relief from all her body ailments. Now, that's immediately. Now, her husband, who had thought their trip to Lourdes absurd, told her as she exited the bath, you were right to come here. I know now that everything is behind us. Now, four months later, Danella, having been restored to perfect health, the couple returned to report 
or instantaneous cures to the Lord's Office of Medical Observation. So she was evaluated, and it was determined that her blood pressure was at a normal level. So she returned to Law Lords for five more meetings with the office in 89, 1989, 1992, 94, 97, and then 2010. And again, I had mentioned earlier that these people were followed to ensure that these cures are lasting conditions and not, you know, just something that uh, the people claim and, and then it goes away after a while. So these are last in order the condition comes back uh, that they originally had when they went to Lourdes. So the condition, indeed it was, it was a lasting condition, and the Office of Medical Observation certified Danella had been cured in a complete and lasting way from the date of her pilgrimage to Lourdes in 1989. Now, in 2011, the International Medical Committee, the safeguard, certified the findings of the Lourdes Office of Medical Observation that the cure remained unexplained do now according to the current medical knowledge that they have. For the Bishop of Sabe and Lourdes Ford, these findings to the Bishop of the Diocese in Benello is, and that was Bishop uh, Giovanni Yuducci of Pavia, Italy, and he accepted the findings of the medical experts and he declared the case miraculous. Now, Danella has since insisted that two miracles came from bathing in the waters of Lourdes. Her cure and the restoration of her husband's faith, because both would return frequently as pilgrims to Lourdes, and include, uh, which included them working as volunteers assisting the sick until uh, Danella's death last year. So that's, again, I had mentioned, we concentrated a little bit on the uh, spiritual here, but you can see um, that the physical healing and the spiritual healings, they are, you know, very, very, very uh, closely united. And many of these healings, whether some people get the physical ones, like Vanilla, that was the actual physical, but yet her husband got this, the, the spiritual one. So it's uh, incredible um, because of the strict criteria that is applied to all these cases um, put forth to the Office of Medical Observation. So, so you can see that these apparitions, you know, what God does for us to keep us, you know, especially we look at the times we live in now, and it, it seems that evil is just um, flourishing. I don't think many of us would uh, dispute that. And it seems almost as if right now evil seems to be invincible. I mean, we see what the, uh, we talked about last week of the, uh, the uh, abortion law in New York that Governor Cuomo did. And you know, by that time now, there are other states that are doing it. New Mexico now has jumped on board with that. And uh, you see, it seems that we're spiraling downhill. And at the same time, we think we're making progress. And, you know, uh, one sad thing about New York, as I had mentioned, is that uh, when that abortion law uh, was signed is that they turned on that uh, oh what do they call it? world Tower, it's not the twin tower but the world tower one or whatever they call it now they lit it up as, in pink uh, as a celebration and the people were cheering and I mean and yet we we think this is progress when we're actually without a doubt going toward infanticide 
And this is something that people are saying is, is a right and a good thing. So we see this spiral and the divisions of, across, across, whether it be Brexit, the politics, you name it. But God, throughout history, because our history is loaded with things like this, with wars and rumors of wars and killing children and just horrific events in this, in this pilgrimage of life that we go through. And we may witness it ourselves, or at least in this day and age, you can see that many people do. And God gives us the apparitions. He gives us throughout history, our checkered history, um, these wonderful apparitions and these wonderful cures and these wonderful signs if we're open if we're open to see them and keep our faith strong and to realize that good will always triumph. Good will always triumph. I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, we were doing a show. I don't remember what we are doing on offhand. But I mentioned that the plagues, you know, here you had in the Old Testament in Exodus, here you had God going against Pharaoh the supreme power on earth and the Egyptian nation. To the Jewish people, it would seem, were invincible. And yet, God triumphed. The people went from slavery, slave, being slaves, to freedom, to liberation. So we must always look to these things. They are given to us by God to hold on and grasp our faith and trust in him and have faith. So we want to hold on to that. Now, I mentioned that people are open because even with Lord's today or other cures or other miracles that we see, whether they be Eucharistic miracles, what have you, there are always doubters. Now, why we say this is there are many who refuse to believe in miraculous interventions by God. And they will try the best they can to use science or any other, any other way or means but God, but miracles, but supernatural. Now, many claim with Lourdes itself that the actual water and the chemical composition of the water in the grotto is what cures the people. It's not God. It's not supernatural. Okay? So the first thing that they want to do is take that out and claim that the water itself is what heals. That has the curative power. And therefore, it leads that to the next question, what that must mean that there is a natural force, and this is the next stepping stone they use, a natural force that we are ignorant of as human beings that operates marvelous cures that you people attribute to God. So how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, first of all, if there was such a law 
and in, of nature that did exist like this. The pilgrims of Lourdes would not be cognizant of it any more than the rest of mankind. Neither would they know any better than others on how that was set into motion. So here's the key. Why would those pilgrims, why would the law operate if it was a law for them and not others? Because remember, not everyone that goes to Lourdes gets the, spirit, the physical healing. We know this. They may get spiritual healings. But again, the point here, what we're trying to make, is that if this law, this natural operated, it would operate for everyone, not just a few individuals. Now, is it because the pilgrims that were cured, uh, they believe in the existence of Christ and others don't? But if that were true, a natural law that produced uh, instantaneously curing and generations of tissues that are affected would say lesions. That is to say, to cure an organic disease, how can that work? Because scientifically, any growth and consequently any restoration of tissues of an organism is accomplished, and this again is a scientific fact, by the increase in growth of protoplasms and cells which compose every living body. So, what we see then is that every existing protoplasm comes from some former protoplasm, and that one from a previous one, and so on and so on, back to the very beginning. And these generations, and this fact is self-evident, are necessarily successive. That is, they require the cooperation of time. Therefore, if we were going to go with the natural force, this natural law that does the healing, as some claim, it should be able to operate a sudden cure in an organic disease because the essential basis of life, as it is in the present creation, would have to be overthrown. Therefore, nature as we know it would have to be destroyed and another created on a different plan. So therefore, this hypothesis of unknown forces of nature cannot be brought forward to explain instantaneous cures at Lourdes. It is logically, as we pointed out, untenable. As a matter of fact, no natural cause, known or unknown, is sufficient to account for the marvelous cures witnessed at the foot of the celebrated rock, that grotto, where the Virgin Mary deigned to appear. That, interven that intervention can only come from God. But, you see, when we acknowledge that there is God and there is something greater than us, and we fight it because, you know, we're spiritual beings and we are geared, truly, to look outside ourselves to know, to instinctively know that there is something greater. But we as human beings in our pride, it got us into trouble way back in the Garden of Eden it's going to get us into trouble until the last day. When we have that spirit, that pride, we cannot acknowledge that there is something greater than us. For we in turn want to be God. And therefore we are not going to have that humble spirit. And we're going to try and create a society, an individual, a purpose and a world 
of our own design and making. And in the many, many, many generations of human beings that have come, that have went, how are we doing so far? We're not even close to creating some kind of utopia. And we won't be because the matter of fact of our lives and our existence is that we are not God. He is the creator. And when we acknowledge that, as some cultures and some peoples did and some civilizations did, good things happen. And when we don't, it's just the opposite. Bad things happen. When we do it, as the Sinatra song used to say, our way. And we're seeing it play out right now. And the answer, as it always has been and always will be, is right in front of us. But in our pride, we won't acknowledge it. And I believe that is one of the reasons so many people take such a hard line on, on miracles, because it means they may have to acknowledge that there is God. And if that's the truth, then they have to change. And we all know how difficult change is for all of us. But that change would give us the condition to help bring about the kingdom of God here on earth if we followed the right God. And not a God of Caesar's making, which many of us, to all degrees, follow. Because we know that Jesus Christ came to serve and not be served. And we live in a world that is just the opposite. We are to be served, not to serve. Brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Keep faith. Remember that God is invincible. He has already defeated and is evil. And for those that follow him, even during the crosses and trials, which he endured himself, he has a reward that, as St. Paul said, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And those will be given to those who remain faithful. So pray for that faithfulness, that perseverance. Never give up hope. Never lose your hope of Christ. For he is the resurrection and the life. God bless and good night. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.